It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the Money Guy Show. I got to tell you, I get tired of saying it because it's starting to just sound like we're repeating the same show over and over, but it seems like between every show we do now, we get into more of an intense situation with what's going on in the economy. Uh, if you would have asked me at the beginning of this downturn, what's the lowest point you think this thing can go, I would have said 6,500 points on the Dow Jones. And you can see this week we came incredibly close to hitting that number. Who knows by the time this show actually gets published, who knows what's going to go on because I know Friday we have unemployment numbers coming out um, for the nation, and there's a lot of people that think there's going to be a lot of pessimism in that. So we'll see what happens. It's um, it's, it's definitely interesting times that we're living in. Um, for those just tuning in, this is the Money Guy Show. I am your host, Brian Preston. This is not my day job. My day job is I'm actually a fee-only wealth manager on the south side of Atlanta. I am a certified public accountant, a certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist, which just means I'm a CPA that does financial planning. And I'm also a NAPFA registered financial advisor, which means I'm a fee-only um, financial advisor that is a member of the NAPFA uh, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, if you want to go check them out. Really good organization. But we've got something to cover today. Um, I want to kind of get away from what's going on in the economy and kind of get back to some of the, the personal finance issues because I know I like to load you guys up and go beyond common sense and kind of equip you to not only be great investors and great long-term becoming financially independent individuals, but I also want you to be good consumers, meaning that when you go out there, you are equipped to make sure you don't get ripped off, that you're making the best decisions possible, that every dollar you spend is being maximized. I think that's more important than ever. And one of the things I want to talk about today is I've had several things. You know, I often wonder, what am I going to talk about this week? And then something in life happens, and it makes it all very easy. And I had two things that have happened in the last month that have kind of put this topic out there. It's just we've had so many economic things going on that we haven't been able to touch on it. But I want to talk about, uh, you know, buyer protection when you go and buy products. Uh, I've had two things happen. Bo, my associate here at Preston and Cleveland, bought a, well, he had somebody bought him a PlayStation, uh, you know, the with the Blu-ray, was it a PlayStation 3? PlayStation 3, I don't, you can tell I don't own one. I don't have time to play video games, picking on you, Bo. But um, PlayStation, he doesn't either, by the way. I think that thing has not had as much use as he thought since he started working full-time. But he has a PlayStation 3 that a family member bought him for Christmas, and they bought it through eBay. And um, it hasn't, it has some technical problems. It's broken. It needs to be repaired. And he's quickly found out that there are some concerns when you buy electronics on eBay, especially if they're gifts and items that won't be used for a few months because you have a very small window to make sure everything is working and functioning when you buy from some of these online services. And I'm guilty of that too. I bought um, a Wii, you know, up here I just picked on Bo for his PlayStation, and then I did buy a Wii for the family back during better times, even though it was very crazy the fourth quarter of last year. I still felt comfortable enough buying a video game system. I think we've enjoyed it. We don't leave the house as much, so it's okay to have that stuff. But we bought a, a, a Wii, and I bought that through eBay. I couldn't find it at the stores at the time, and I also found a great deal on Live.com where you could, if you bought through um, a Buy It Now type program, you could get 25% back from Microsoft. And it sounded like a scam, but it really was legit. I actually got the money back from PayPal. 
um, in, in the last month. But here nor there, I'm just saying a lot more people are buying electronics through eBay and electronic retailers. And I think you've got to be careful because there are limitations on how much coverage you have. Also, my father-in-law, been talking about for years. He's had one of those big 36-inch tube TVs that weighed all of like 500 and 600 pounds. You know, it takes three guys to carry this thing up and down the stairs. I've been trying to convince him to go to the new technology, whether it's plasma, LCD, uh, to, to try to get something that was, you know, high, high definition and then also something that was a little bit bigger because back when it was just tubes for, for televisions, you know, you're limited on your size without getting a projector. Now the technology, as you guys know, it's, it's amazing what you can do. So I finally got my father-in-law to jump into a high-definition TV set. He bought it from a local retailer, but the problem is he, he took advantage of some special deal where he did the the zero finance you know the zero down zero interest rate financing because he wanted to get the ten percent off or something like that that they were offering at this retail store. Well, we had a bad storm come through, and sure this thing was on a monster um, surge protector, but still somehow I don't know what in the world happened, but um, uh, the TV quit working after after this uh, within about two weeks of him buying it, and. And he realized that he wasn't going to have some of the protection he would have had if he'd have bought it through just a regular credit card company. And that's what I want to talk to you about is that um, there are additional protection you can do. You have to know where you stand with what happens when you buy on eBay or pay, you know, and use PayPal to pay for stuff. How much protection do you have? And then also, as I talked about with Liz Weston when we did our interview with her a few months ago, is that you can actually get some extended coverage by just paying for things with a credit card. Now, I'm not saying, because I noticed when I, I did some research on this, there's a lot of people, obviously with the debt situation and everybody deleveraging these days and getting out of debt, credit cards have become, you know, the boogeyman. And I'm not saying I want you to go run up a bunch of debt, so please don't write all the comments about it. You should never use credit cards. We, we got it. We understand that. But I am saying that if you if you are one of these reasonable people that pays your bill off month to month, I'm one of those people, I think it's a great tool to use credit cards if you're paying them off month to month. Um, so don't write the anti-debt. Believe me, I'm not one of the, I'm not the poster children that's running up tons of debt. And I don't think most of you that are listening are that way either. You are the cream. You guys, I'm always amazed to see what you guys do for a living because you're usually decision makers and very successful individuals. And I know you don't get that way by running up credit card debt and getting yourself in trouble. So you understand the responsibility that comes with working with a tool like credit and credit cards. So I, I want to go over that. And when we were doing the research, I'm going to give you a link uh, to to a, uh, an article that Bo actually found out there, and, and is this is this a blog, Bo, or is this an actual article that was published? It's a blog. Okay, this is a blog, and it was a good one. It's um, it's from the Money Blue Book, and it's a it's it's another financial blogger out there. So we're going to give him a link so he can see we've linked back to him and and give him some kudos because this was done very well. Let me see if it's got his name before I go on any further. I don't see his name anywhere, but the, the Money Blue Book had an article or a blog entry that titled, Get a Free Extended Warranty by Purchasing with a Credit Card. And, and I thought it was very good because it, it went on to say, and this I talked about this, like I said, with Liz Weston when, when she was on for the, the, the interview, we, the loaded celebrity interview we did with her a few months ago. One of the things she mentioned is we were talking about iPhones, and she said the week after she got her iPhone, I can't remember if she, got, if she said it, she dropped it in water or if she dropped it and broke it but anyhow she had a mishap or it broke within a week of her buying it 
and um, she was able to get it replaced through the extended protection on her credit card. So that's what we were going to go research, and then Bo found this blog, and it had all the terms laid out, and, and it, I think it's a great resource. So we're going to give this guy some kudos and actually give him a link so we can give him some traffic to look at the, the money entry he did at the, at the Money Blue Book. Uh, and that website, if you want to go check it out, is moneybluebook.com, so we'll give him a plug there. But he writes on, he goes to say, in most cases, the credit card program automatically tax on an additional year to the product's existing warranty period, period, effectively doubling the extended warranty period up to the program limit for no additional cost. That's what I like is because, you know, how often do you go to the store, you buy some dinky electronic that, you know, maybe costs, you know, 50, 60 bucks, and they want to they wanna try to sell you an extended warranty for $7. You know, Consumer Reports has done research on this too. A lot of these products because technology is changing so fast these days, within two to three years, you're probably not going to want to repair that thing anyway. You just want to replace it with the brand new technology that has brand new features that's going to make it you know, even more useful to you. So a lot of times those extended warranties are a sucker's bet, so be very careful out there. But um, the blogger goes on to, to, to expand and it says items that, um, it does say that not everything is covered. It does typically cover when you when you buy with a credit card, um, and I'm going to go through each individual credit card company in a minute. We're talking about American Express, MasterCard, Visa. And we're even going to talk about Discover. And I, I use my Discover card a good bit. And I was kind of disappointed to hear that they don't have some of the same protection that MasterCard and Visa and American Express are doing. So we'll get into the details. But it talked about that generally electronics are covered, but there was some exclusions. And, and what, they, what they went on to expand and say was items generally excluded include motor vehicles such as cars, boats, airplanes, real estate and land and computer software so pretty much anything but those big purchase items they're trying not to you know obviously provide you protection on uh, a car a boat an airplane if you're buying airplanes i don't hear about many people buying real estate with credit cards but i guess they had to put that in there the attorneys told them to do that just to make sure they were completely covered um, it goes on to say what to do to qualify. It says to qualify for the credit card extended warranty protection, you'll need to keep a copy of your original purchase receipt. Generally, after the product manufacturer warranty runs out, you'll need to contact the credit card company or issuing bank for a claims form and hand, have them handle the cost of fixing and repairing the item. You should be prepared to submit your receipt and print out of the original manufacturer's warranty. Upon receipt of your claim form, the credit card company will decide whether to repair or replace the, the item or reimburse you for the value of the property. And it, and, it, and it lists, and I might get Bo just to go on our website, and if you want to go check us out at money-guy.com, you can go look at the show notes. You can sign up to get free newsletters blasted out to you that with our show notes, and then we're also looking at extending our membership section in the coming month. We're trying to hire... Uh, a, a podcast consultant as we speak to help us work with a member. By the way, we're, we're, we're having some issues with that still. If you know anybody or you yourself as a huge WordPress a member expert, email us. You can email me at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. And I'm even going to give you, um, you can email Bo, my, my associate here at the firm, at bo.hanson, that's B-O, um, you know, like he stinks, dot Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N, at Preston-Cleveland.com, because we do, we're, we're trying to work with somebody right now, but they, they've been a little slow to um, to respond to some emails, so I'm starting to get nervous about the whole thing. But go, we're going to put these on the show notes, that the items that you're going to need. But let's talk about the individual credit card companies. American Express 
has their buyer's assurance plan. And what the, the American Express buyer assurance plan does, it's, it's probably the best one, according to, to the research of this blog, because all you it's also the least restrictive, because under its buyer assurance plan, American Express will match the original warranty or extend the terms of the original U.S. manufacturer's warranty for up to an additional one year on eligible purchases with warranties of five years or less. So um, some things, and by the way, some of this, some of this coverage, and I'm not going to go into this detail, but it, some of this, and he does in his blog, does work in cahoots if you did buy the extended warranty when you bought the product. I'm, I'm telling you, you probably don't need to do that because a lot of that stuff, like I said earlier, these gadgets or these electronics are going to probably be outdated in three to five years anyway, so how much protection do you really want? But um, he goes on to give more details that they can work in cahoots with an extended protection plan that you might pass separately. Uh, Visa, the warranty manager service, and you can know if you have this, if you just look up at your Visa card, um, all the signature cards. I know the all the Visa cards that we have um, are signature cards. I have one with Chase, uh, the Cash Rewards Plus, uh, incredible card. But uh, I, this is probably my primary card, but they, they're a little more restrictive than the American Express but still not a bad program because it goes the Visa Warranty Manager Service offers the extended warranty protection that doubles the free repair period under the original manufacturer's written U.S. repair warranty up to one additional year on eligible warranties of three years or less when an item is purchased entirely with your eligible Visa card. MasterCard, which includes all of their Platinum, Gold, and World MasterCards, they offer, it's very similar to, to the Visa, it's, it goes on and say, says that the MasterCard's extended warranty doubles the manufacturer's warranty time period for up to a maximum of one additional year. If, however, the original manufacturer's warranty is already for more than one year, no additional coverage will apply. So that's something you need to pay attention to on the MasterCard. It's a little more restrictive than obviously the Amex and the Visa protection. And then the last of the big four credit card providers is Discover Card. And according to um, the M Money Blue Book, uh, that when they did their research, Discover Card unfortunately does not offer cardholders any extra warranty coverage for products purchased using its card, which is a shame because, you know, Discover Card is typically one of the more... Um, I don't know. I, I've always liked because my cash back wise, they seem like they have a lot of good incentives, but they they're a little behind the 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 times on on their their protection, the buyer protection out there. So maybe um, through attention like this and doing shows like this, we can get them to, to step up their game a little bit. I also thought it was interesting looking at this blog. I read one of the um, the comments that was listed. There was a, a comment from a gentleman by the name of Steve that was posted on December twenty sixth of 2008, so right after Christmas, he wrote um, this comment. He said, an excellent overview. I've had personal experience in the past year with both a Visa extended warranty claim and a store-bought extended warranty. That experience has led me to believe that not only are the Visa warranties vastly cheaper, they're also better. Both claims involved LCD TVs. The Visa warranty covered the first one. I was required to take it into a service facility and get a repair estimate. The manufacturer was defunct, and the technician could not get the necessary part. He put this on the estimate. I submitted to Visa, and they reimbursed me for the full purchase price plus sales tax. A remarkable, hassle-free experience. Under the purchase purchase extended warranty, the administrator selects a servicer to do in-home repair if possible. The terms of the contract are vague and consistently vest all determinations with the administrator. In this instance, the pass part was ordered, 
but was still not received after 60 days. At that point, they offered a different unit as a replacement or the cash value of that unit in cash. I must admit that the, their ultimate settlement was reasonable, but it was a long time coming. I was relieved, however, because I had no idea what to expect given the ambiguity and vagaries of the, I don't even know if that's a word, but okay, of the contract language. But I think had it been covered by the visa policy, I might have well gotten back $900 or more. Credit cards are one of the great freebies for those who have self-discipline and don't carry balances. They're great for managing finances, convenience, safe, and can generate a substantial financial bonus through rewards programs and benefits such as these. I'm buying a replacement LCD today and will be purchasing the visa five-year coverage at a cost of $96 versus $249 from the retailer for what I'm pretty sure is an inferior product. And that, that's actually, I didn't mean to, you know, it sounds like you gave a little plug there for the credit card companies, which is fine, but I thought that comment um, also led to a, another part uh, of this whole write-up that um, that was put on this blog is that Visa also does, and he kind of hinted at that, also offers a purchase performance guarantee program, which is kind of like an extended warranty program, but a lot cheaper. And I didn't, I'm not a big extended warranty program, so that's why I didn't give you a lot of details on that. But it's something you definitely, we're going to provide you the link to that article. And then he, on his own blog, and we'll go ahead and put this too, gives links to every one of those credit card program so you can go research the details. And I printed those out, but there's no reason to go any deeper in that. Now let's talk about PayPal. I already told you about the situation where um, my associate Bo had a, 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 I keep wanting to say Xbox, but it's actually a PlayStation 3 was given to him for Christmas and he was very excited about it. He got it, but the problem was is that the family member bought it in November and you can do the math. Um, you know, Christmas comes around in December and I think, you know, you get around Christmas time, it's at the end of the December, and, you know, it might be a day or two or a week before you hook up your, your equipment, and you go hook it up and you realize, wait a minute, this thing does not work. Well, you quickly scramble to go look up the terms and protection you have through PayPal, and this is what we found out, because, and this is how this topic kind of came up, is because of this exact research, because Bo found out it was going to cost, what, 150 bucks? It was going to cost $150. To fix this PlayStation 3, well, that's about half the cost of what these things cost, I believe. So what we found out was is that you only have protection buying through PayPal for 45 days. And you got to know that when you buy from eBay, it usually voids out a lot of those warranties. Because I'm sure the PlayStation 3 has a, um, how long is the warranty? It has a one-year warranty, but they have a provision that if you buy it from a, a non-authorized retailer, it pretty much voids that out. Is that correct? So so you're kind of up the creek. So you can see how this is very concerning. I mean, like I said, I bought my Wii for the family and the Wii Fit because I, I found a, a great deal through Microsoft where they were that Microsoft Live, live.com website, where you could get, if you bought it through the Buy It Now program on eBay, they were offering 25% back through PayPal, which I thought was incredible, and it really was legit. So I, I, I bought everything I could, but now this has got me thinking about being very careful about buying electronics through eBay because you, you have to be very careful if that voids out the manufacturer's warranty. I think this is something probably eBay and PayPal, since they're owned by the same company, really need to go research and probably renegotiate and go negotiate with a lot of the manufacturers out there that this could be a long-term problem for them because how are you going to feel if you go buy a brand new unit? It doesn't work. You don't, can't take it back to the manufacturer because they're saying, oh, you, you bought it from a reseller. So that voids out our warranty. And then you're stuck with 45 days. And 
what if your your family member you know bought it 45 days earlier and it sat under your tree for a whole month you're up the creek and that's what we ran into and and Bo's gonna have to carry the brunt of that repair cost all his own and that's something I want you guys to avoid because I think this is something a trend that's happening more and more as we're all buying our electronics through the internet and we're finding out that there are some hiccups with that whole process so be very careful so I hope that helps now I do want to close out the show and I probably should have given a, a kind of a promo so a few of you who, wrote, who have written me recently would hang around and listen but I wanted to read you some emails because I did a show last well I guess is two weeks ago talking about the the you know I went on and talked about the stimulus plan I, t- I talked about a few things but then at the end of the show I talked about the stimulus plan and a lot of you wrote me back I mean I think a, a few of you called it provocative and I knew it would probably would be anytime you bring up politics I try to avoid religion politics and those type of things that's hard to change anybody's mind but I couldn't help myself um, with that stimulus plan because I was a little concerned about it I, as I as I mentioned in the last show you know I have a very uh, I think a common sense type philosophy on the way policy should be set up. As I said, you know, they ought to they ought to get laminated cards that say that you provide incentives to economic behavior you want to encourage, and then you tax economic behavior you want to discourage. And you know, and that's one of the things I will tell you right now. The the current budget where they're going to raise taxes on people who make over two hundred fifty thousand. That's one thing to raise the tax rates, but another thing is they're going to take out the deductions for mortgage interest um, to a level, and then also charitable deductions. And, and that concerns me because remember, why do we even, you know, one of the things we think is probably good in society is that we know government can't do everything. Well, I think a lot of us think the government can't do everything. And so we count on private organizations, charities, churches, you know, community organizations, not-for-profits to kind of fill in the gaps so we don't have these lost people out there. And we all try to fill in the gaps and help out on that. And the government has recognized that's a good thing, so they, they've kind of tied into my laminated sheet, and they say, let's provide an economic incentive so people will provide generously to organizations that can fill in the gaps of things we can't provide. And, and what have we seen is if they cut that back, I know, sure, there's a lot of us that are still going to give to charity, but it's going to also take a lot of incentives away from uh, the the people giving that, and I think that could have a, a really bad impact on hurting um, jobs in the, in the not for profit or you know uh, sector of the economy. I think there's a lot of ripple effects that that was not thought through when they said let's go take um, the the charitable deduction out or limit it for for people who make over two hundred fifty thousand. I just I don't understand the logic of that, but that's here nor there. Let's get to the emails because I thought these were some good things, and they were counter. I don't want you to think I just read all the love emails. I love to get the emails where you're, the people are respectful, but they have different opinions because I surround myself with people with different opinions because I love a good, healthy debate, and I think that's what we need more of instead of just this pointing and sticking your tongue out and, and getting all worked up in a lather and then not getting anything done. So I, wish, I hope we have more discussions like this. But it, it's, it's, got, it's from a gentleman named Mike. Mike's a CPA, so... Um, I'll go ahead and say he's a smart guy because that's one of my, my, my favorite designations because it's not an easy one to get. But Mike wrote me and he said this. He said, Brian, first thing first, I love your podcast. I'm a CPA and I'm 56. I passed the November 2007 CFP exam. So Mike's not only a CPA, he's about to be a CFP too. And work for a small fee-based planner here in Indianapolis. A fun story to share with you before I got to my main point before I get to my main point. On my drive to the CFP testing site early that Saturday morning in November, I began listening to your podcast 
as you discuss the various features of equity index annuities. Lo and behold, during the first morning test session, I encounter a host of questions questions dealing with the features of equity index annuities. Thanks for the test preparation. Now let's talk about Mike's true point. He goes, I guess you would describe my economic philosophy similar to New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. I'm a compassionate free market capitalist. When I saw Rick Santelli's rant on Obama's mortgage proposal linked from your website, did you happen to hear the gentleman's comment right after Rick asked the question on helping their neighbors with delinquent loans? This guy says, how about we off them? Pure free market capitalism has a well-documented history of causing devastating human and social damage. And this damage impacts not only individuals who took stupid risk, but unfortunately those who were completely innocent. I think government regulation has a definite role in limiting the overreaching greed we often see in free market economies. I also think the government has a limited but important role in assisting its citizens during severe economic crisis. You and I may disagree on the limitations imposed by regulators and the greater or lesser role of government assistance plays in softening the damage resulting from recessions, but I think you'll agree with me that there is a definite need for these government functions. I would only ask that the, the next time you discuss our current economic crisis, keep in mind the hard edge of free market capitalism. Once again, thanks so much for the podcast, and I am interested in the premium service should you get that portion of the website up and running. Me too, Mike, by the way. I can't wait to get the premium side up if we can just get some um, some help. We've got the content, got the research, just hadn't happened, but um, we're working on it, so hang in there with us, guys. But I will tell you what what, what Michael has written I thought was, you know, it, there is a hard edge to capitalism to a degree, but that's why I got so excited a number of years ago when you heard the term compassionate conservative come out. Now, it's, that has been completely done wrong now because, unfortunately, President Bush, when he got in, he was not a true physical conservative type guy. So he, um, you know, now when you talk about a compassionate conservative, everybody thinks of George Bush. W, and um, it, it doesn't work out well for the whole cause because I do think that there's a hard edge, but I will say there's also research that shows that a lot of the very successful people out there are very generous with their giving to charitable organizations, and I think that the government definitely has a role in protecting us. They have a role in making sure we have fair markets, and, and believe me, nobody, I think the bankers who did this stuff, and as well as the government you know, incentives that were provided to, to try to, you know, to, to make the, the, the availability of money to the point that it was ridiculous, that drove up the prices of houses where they were not affordable, all of that stuff bears the weight of what they have done to this economy. But, but that's still not helpful when we get into what's been going on recently, which is the kind of class warfare, where we're now saying that people who have been successful, and it's not just, there was, you know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, you hear that saying all the time, but it really is true. It's just because you had some nuts, some guys who took this thing to the extreme. And believe me, we're going to get that the price is being paid. You know, the, the pound of flesh has been taken from Wall Street on that. But let's not just assume anybody who's ever had success has not been trying to be helpful to the community. And, and I, I do agree there's a hard edge to capitalism. But my main point was about the recovery. I think, you know, Obama said it best when he first got elected. I don't know what's happened because he was kind of more in the middle and moderated when he, when he was first talking about after he got elected what he, was, what he thought was going to be necessary to, to stimulate the economy. He said we're going to have to hit this thing from all angles and, and nothing's off the table. And, and I just find it very interesting, 
you know, because that, that means to me is these shovel-ready projects. There's nothing wrong with doing some of the infrastructure because, it, you know, it's that targeted, focused, short-term spending to get people employed, get things going. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But the ultimate recovery, because that's short-term to get some, you know, government spending out there for these shovel-ready projects. But long-term, it falls on the back of the private citizen and, and people being employed. And that's my point is that where was the incentives in the stimulus bill that, that's going to do that. And why are we providing incentives to sectors of the economy that aren't struggling? If you think about what is a recession and how do you stimulate it, is you have an overcapacity of workers that are not employed anymore. You know, they've been laid off. So, you know, the government's role with stimulus bills is to do a timely targeted short-term or temporary um, stimulus that will utilize that, that, that nation's resource, which is the United States has a resource of all these construction workers and all these other people in other sectors that are currently unemployed that are a resource for the community that need to be utilized and put to work. So I don't understand why when you go and pick out the sectors that were stimulated according to the stimulus bill, a lot of them are sectors that you don't hear about people being unemployed in. Healthcare. I understand we're having this whole discussion, and healthcare probably does need to update some things. Why, why don't we go to instead of having every state have different, you know, requirements to be able to sell insurance in that state? We we're we're at the whatever the will of the or whim of that state's specific, you know, what they want to put in. Why don't we take away the, the state's ability to do that and go with more of a universal open market type of insurance program where it becomes much more competitive. I think these type of things will help. But my main point here is, is that healthcare, how many times have you heard of a doctor or a nurse recently says, man, I can't believe I got laid off over at the hospital. It's not happening. Healthcare is not a shortage area. We actually, with the graying of America, we have more and more people in healthcare, but somehow we're going to take a lot of the stimulus money and put it there. Same thing with energy. I understand we're trying to get off the dependence of oil and foreign governments, and I think that's great, but we, we have to, if you're talking about the definition of stimulus, we have inventory issues in real estate. We also have an, an underutilized workforce. That's how you get the economy going. Those, those are more of agenda items, which, you know, could be very worthy items, but they're not stimulated. They're actually social-type programs that, you, you know, of what you're trying to encourage. And I understand that, and I think that's fine, but don't try to call it stimulus when you're trying to send money to areas that already have um, healthy economies kind of going on. Um, that, that, that's, that's my thing. I said, I, and I, 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 Rick Santelli, I think that he just probably hit on the point that we just want to make sure that we are rewarding the people who are doing good behavior. Now, there's been a little more clarification. It does appear that it's not going to be a, a free lunch for everybody who's behind on their mortgage and gotten themselves in trouble, and that's a good thing. But let's just try to remember, we've even thrown out some ideas on the show on ways that we can encourage good behavior because I think that's what you don't want to do. You don't want to have the people who have tried to follow the rules, who have done everything right, to all of a sudden feel like that um, – you know, the, the system stack against them because that's not healthy either. I've never heard of anybody getting turning the poor rich by t making the rich poor. And we have to really take that into heart to, to know that there could be some concerns if we break the people who are producing a lot of the jobs. And I know Geithner recently testified. Um, I watched his testimony on CNBC or, you know, not testified, but I guess he, you know, gave a report to um, – up, up in D.C., and one of the things he that he said, you know, they said, what's the impact of small business? He said 97% of business owners 
are, are small business owners are under two hundred fifty thousand. But I think that's a, a, a smoke. That's a, 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 a that's kind of a distraction. I wish the question would have been asked: Is how many of those three percent that you're claiming are are more than two fifty of the small business owners? What portion of the population is employed by that 3%? That's the better question, not just doing a numbers game with every person that, that shows a tax return of under 250. That It's not truly showing the impact of how many people are employed. I got another email, another um, person that didn't agree with me completely, and I love that. And I think that these guys were all great with the, the way they wrote me. Mark wrote, he said, um, Brian, here are some of my thoughts. He said, Bernanke, Summers, Geithner, and all those folks, including Buffett and Gates, are not really guys who want big government. What Obama inherited is deep and wide, and it is only a month. I think he means well, and no better solution is on the table. You can probably ask Paulson, remember the three-page memo for $700 billion, et cetera, et cetera. From what I've learned, the major problem is the credit markets and the banking system. It seems to me that you might be mixing up innovations of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates with the failure of the financial system. Unfortunately, government has to fix the banking problem for the innovators to do their thing. That is the highway of the economy that everyone runs on. The biggest culprit in this mess are the bankers who loaned money to the often too greedy, unworthy applicants. I am no expert, but I saw this coming, and so did the guys like John Talbot or the housingbubble.com guy. There is no magic bullet, and the op, OP op opposers have not put forth anything but tax cuts. It seems like there are some good arguments for tax cuts, but Reagan and Bush, the biggest tax cuts guys, seem to have produced terrible econ- economies. They have also been... The, the opposed to the progress of science such as stem cell research, etc. Clinton did amazing things in a pragmatic matter, manner, and it is not because of the opposition. Ask Greenspan. Private guys will continue to do great things, but don't forget their screw-ups. When not regulated, they run the economy amok. Don't forget Enron, WorldCom, and Madoff, an awful health care industry that milks the government. Brian, we most likely see the world in different ways, but I do believe we can learn from each other. And I think that's a great email, Mark. I, I think I really do. But I've got to tell you, I've quit listening to all the talking heads and kind of done my own research. And I keep hearing over and over on the nightly news that, you know, we've got this inherited problem and we don't want to continue the, the disaster of policies of the last eight years. And I think that's very interesting. But I've gone and pulled my own numbers because I just don't trust anybody these days. You know, you, can't, you watch the nightly news, you wonder what their agenda is. You listen to any of the talk radio guys that are on the AM station, you wonder what their agenda is. So you know what you do when you get in situations like that? You go do your own research. And that's what we did. Me and Bo have gone out, and it's easy. With the Internet, the God bless the Internet, you can go and research, research anything you want. So I was able to go pull what total tax revenues were, total outflows of the government were by year, and then I was able to go, you know, obviously pull who was president during those periods, who was in the House and who was in the Senate. And the way I did this was, is I took the four-year terms or eight-year terms, depending upon how long each of them were in president, and then looked at the House and Senate and whoever was longer, meaning if the, if the House was for six years was Republican um, and two years was Democrat, I quoted that as the House was six years as a Republican. You know, I, that way I don't want to split hairs, but I, I gave it if you had the majority of the time was one way, that's who got credit. So let's talk about the presidents. We had Carter, the 1976 through t- through 1980 period out there. We had um, tax revenues per year increased by 9.4%. So you hear that, you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty good that the economy actually, tax collections coming into tax revenue were 9.4% a year growth. And we had Carter, who was a Democrat. 
We had the House was Democrats, and then the, the Senate was Republicans during Carter's administration. And so we had 9.4% growth, which is very, very healthy. The problem was, and listen to this, because I want you to notice a trend that I'm about to talk about. Outflow-wise, meaning what the government spent, grew annually at a 14.7% clip. Every year, the government, on average, now, you know, it's, I annualized this, meaning that I took the total growth during that four-year period and figured out what it was on an annual basis, and it's 14.7%. Remember, tax revenue was 9.4 per year. 14.7 was the increase in spending. So you can see how you have a problem. And this is that whole thing I was talking about is that, say you make $100,000 a year, you get a 10%, you know, you get a 10% raise, you're like, great, I'm in a better financial situation. But if you go and spend... You know, 115, you're now making 110, you're in a worse financial situation. And that's exactly what the government did during the Carter administration, is that they had great growth, but man, did they like to spend it. They grew the government at 15% a year. That, that's a lot. And then you had Reagan come in. Now remember, these numbers are inflated now, even during the Carter period, because we had huge inflation numbers. CPI was at much double digit during the, this period of time. So these numbers are a little different if you, you have to put it in historical perspective when you hear about the growth as well as the growth of government figures. So tax revenue grew during the Reagan administration, the eight years that he was in, from 1980 to 1988. He, um, the, the government grew 10%. Um, he got elected in 80, like so. I said, like I said, from eight, you know, essentially when he came into office, he was in there eight years. The government grew, I mean, the, the tax revenues grew 10% per year. Pretty healthy number, too. But in outflow, I mean, government, government expenditures grew at 10% a year. So a little better than Carter, but still very high. I think that's ridiculous that the government's growing at 10% clips. Because um, you got to realize the numbers these guys are dealing with. Now, when I started looking at Carter, how much his outflow? The government budget was less than $400 billion back in 1976. Can you believe that? Because wait until I tell you how big the number was at the end of 2007. You're going to die. And this is what the problem with compounding interest is great when you're an investor, but it stinks if you're a taxpayer and, and you're a citizen. If you think about how big our government's gotten, and this is, I was alive. I was a kid during some of this stuff. I can't believe how much things have grown during this time. So like I said, we, uh, you know, we had, we had Reagan who had the, who's the big tax cuts guy. Government worked, you know, tax cuts worked and they spurred the economy to continue to grow at a 10% a year clip. But their spending kept pace with it. So, you know, they, it was 10%. So we still were kind of behind the eight ball because we had, you know, Carter and the administration that was in power then where they were they grew at, you know, 14.7% a year and the economy grew at 9.4. Just in case you're curious, Reagan's a Republican, obviously. The House and the Senate were both controlled by Democrats during his presidency. So you had a nice split, that gridlock that I told you I loved. And I think you're going to see that I can, wow, I love that. I love it when there's complete gridlock where Washington can't get done as much as they think they need to get done. It's good when you have a checks and balance where you have a, a, you know, a physically conservative group compared to the people who are pushing you know, healthy social agendas for the public as well. Bush 41, um, that, that's the senior Bush. He had a mix. Of, he had uh, the, the Democrats controlled both the House and Senate while Bush was president, number 41, you know, president number 41, Bush senior. Um, 19, um, if you look at how much he grew, the economy only grew at 5% a year while the, the senior Bush was in office. But listen to this. This is the part that's troubling. It's, it's not tax cuts that are the problem, people. It's the spending. His government grew at 7.4% a year. That's too much, especially if you're only growing at 5%. Tax collections only at five, increasing at 5% a year, and then you're spending 7.4%. you are spending more than you make. Not healthy. 
We've got Bill Clinton, who was obviously a Democrat. He had the Republicans in his, you know, in the House and Senate during the majority of his presidency. He had a split period there, but it is majority Republicans. And you can see he had his presidency, if you on paper, awesome because he had growth rates at 10.9 percent a year. If you annualized it, his growth of spending, you ready for this? 3.7. That's inflation, guys. Kudos to the Republicans in the House and Senate and Bill Clinton, who was the president during that period of time, because we had great growth of the 90s, meaning that tax collections were up close to 11% a year, and they didn't go crazy spending. It was great. They only spent 3.7% more per year, which is kind of, you know, keeping in line with that 3 to 4% inflation rate. No problem. So you can see how that's a great system for the economy. And that's why we actually had one of the few times in history where we actually had a balanced budget. We actually had more money coming in than we were spending as a government. That sounds healthy. That's the way me and you operate our households, hopefully. I don't understand why that's not a good equation for the government. Then we get W, President Bush, number 43. He had growth rates. And this shows you, you know, because, you know, we had some bad things happen. We had 9-11. We had the, the biggest terrorist attack ever on the United States. You know, you know, we also inherited the dot-com um, bust that occurred. So this wasn't a great time, but the, the tax cuts didn't necessarily hurt. I mean, you still had growth rate at 4.1% during President Bush's term. But listen to this. This is the disgusting part. What, how much did the government grow per year while President Bush was in office? 7.5% per year. Do you see the problem? So when you hear people say we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the last eight years, what they ought to be thinking about is that they are repeating the mistakes because government spending is necessary to, to as one of my, as one of my, I think it was Mike who wrote and says, you know, that we do want the government to protect and regulate and all that. But then they need to get out of the way. And, and that's the problem is that they keep spending more and more. They never have recessions. When's the last time the government had a recession? When's the last time the government had to have a pullback? You see it in business cycles. You see it with GDP growth, but you never hear about the government slowing down. It seems like we've started the steamroll, and we are repeating the mistakes of the last eight years by spending more and more. It's an insatiable appetite. And I always say that the, the thing I always like to hear people say is that, you never can cut the spigot off either. You know, it's like pouring water down a hill. You know, how you get the water back up the hill? You, you just can't do it. It's impossible. Once the stuff's released, you can't turn it back. And I'm so worried because there is, you go look in, in Europe and other places, when you have more government spending than you have private economic development, you have a, a recipe that slows down growth in the long term. And that concerns me dramatically that we are altering our system. I agree we got to get the bankers in check. we got to get the banking system where people trust what's going on. we got to make sure that the greed regulations are there, that the greed can't do what it was, you know, what happened over the last 10 to 15 years. But it does not mean that we need to expand an agenda so big that, that the government is the biggest employer, spender, and everything where it kind of snuffs out any potential that the private sector has, which is the innovator that does everything for us. Like I said, I'm not listening to the talking heads on this stuff. I'm just going and creating my own numbers and going out there and doing the research. It's easy. Go do the research yourself. Don't take my word. Don't listen to the to the, to the TV shows. Go do your own research. I think it's very healthy to go research this stuff yourself because the numbers don't lie. Government spending can be very damaging in the long term if we don't keep it in check. Remember, stimulus is spending, but it's supposed to be short-term and targeted, 
And, and I'm worried we're not at that situation. Like I said, I hate to talk about politics, but I would not be doing you justice if it, I didn't deal with some of these topics just from a personal finance standpoint. Um, thanks for the, the comments, Mark, Mike. I thought y'all were great with um, giving me an alter, uh, you know, alternative view viewpoint. I did want to read one more email. Did I not print it? Oh, it's a comment. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and get this all out of the way. I had an email, a comment on one of the, if you go, you can leave comments on our website from one of our, our readers, Peter, and I thought he did a better job of explaining Social Security than I did when um, there was a big discussion going on out there when I, when I was talking about the, the Ponzi scheme that Social Security is. And um, there was a gentleman named Dan who had written a few emails about that he didn't think that it was a, a Ponzi scheme, and Peter wrote this, and I thought it was a very good point he made, and he said it probably better than I ever did. He, Peter wrote, Dan, regardless of Brian's opinions about Social Security, it is technically a Ponzi scheme. The system doesn't have enough money to bankroll current retirees, so it pays them directly with the money it collects from current workers. If it wasn't a Ponzi scheme, current retirees would be paid only from the investment profit of their own contributions. With your own retirement investments, it is your own contributions that grow into whatever is paid out to you when you retire. You don't get money that new investors are putting into the stock fund or ETF. The investment manager has the money it needs to pay all investors in the bank. With a Ponzi scheme, there is never enough money to pay all investors. That is why new investors are constantly needed, and that is the current situation with Social Security. The only reason it continues to work is because workers are basically forced into the scheme so that there is a constant influx of new investors. When they speak of Social Security failing, it is because the number of new workers slash investors isn't keeping up with the number of retirees who need to be paid. At some point, the system will be taking in less money than it needs to pay out, which is exactly what happened to Mr. Madoff. And I'll tell you, the year, according to Social Security Administration, if I remember doing this off memory, was 2017. So we, we, it's not that far off where we will have more money being sent out than we are collecting from current workers, and that means the government's going to have to fill the gap. Guess where government gets their money? They're going to have to probably tax us a little bit more. So I understand that taxes are going to be going up. I just, um, you know, I would like us to, to kind of look at the situation and target behavior we would like to encourage. Let's keep capital gains low. Let's keep um, dividends low. Ordinary income tax rates are probably going to have to go up in some degree, but let's not take away all the deductions for behavior we want to encourage. With that, I'll leave you alone. Um, look forward to talk to you in the next week, week and a half, depending on how crazy the markets are. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Go check us out, money-guy.com. I'll talk to you soon. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.